It's the 12th of June, so happy Russia Day, Dien Rasi. And in honour of that, a short episode today in which I'm going to look briefly at three specific news stories and then in the second part dwell a little bit more at length on the forthcoming US-Russian summit. Something for everyone, I hope. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. There's been lots of news stories of late, and although I would have liked to have podcast much more assiduously, I'm afraid that a whole series of projects have come together, which mean that I haven't really had the time to spare. One of those projects, incidentally, was doing the hopefully final proofreads for my next uh, big book. That's The Weaponization of Everything. You can look forward to seeing that hopefully in January, coming from Yale University Press. More on that in due course. But anyway, after that nakedly shameless plug, let me start talking very briefly about the current crackdown that's taking place in Russia, which is, let's face it, an ongoing story. We have had the closure of uh, the Mikhail Khodorkovsky's Open Russia organisation, Atkritka, in, in Russia. No surprise there. If anything, I have to be honest, I'm surprised it actually survived as long as it did and its head being quite theatrically taken off a plane when it, this time when it was still on, hadn't yet taken off. Um, but again, I think a sort of a totally needless but uh, high-profile kind of arrest. We have had the decision, again, no surprise, that in fact, yes, Navalny's organisations are indeed to be considered to be extremist, as if they were some sort of terrorist cells and such like, which of course lays people who have even given just a small donation some time back, theoretically could be opened up to prosecution. It's not as if many will be, but it's just one of these options that the state likes to have in its back pocket and wants everyone to know that it has in its back pocket. Beyond that, the continuing labelling of independent media outlets as foreign agents. We've seen the closing down of yet another one of late, and so it goes. Now, the big question is really, is this essentially the, I hate the expression, but we can't help but use it, the new normal? And I'm going to give the deeply satisfying answer of yes and no. On the one hand, look, it's clear that a decision has been made for a general clean-out that someone had decided, that's it, enough with some specific measures against specific individuals. Let's just clear the board of all the counters of the wrong colour. Media outlets, NGOs, political organisations, you name it. With the aim of, I think, sort of clearing it so that by August, as they start to move seriously into the campaign for the September parliamentary elections, there is no pesky opposition organisation on an institutional structured level to get in the way of creating the kind of result they want. 
It does not mean to say that I think the, the tempo of activity will necessarily be, be retained. If nothing else, because they, they don't think they need to. I don't think we're going to see them, for example, going on a comprehensive basis against uh, civil society at the grassroots level. I think they do still understand that that's necessary, if nothing else, as a way of monitoring what people are really concerned about over and above the Federal Protection Service's ubiquitous polls, and also a very necessary valve to vent out some of the pressures on, on, a, on a local level in a relatively safe way. But on the other hand, so it's not just a question of that's it, they'll, they'll do, do, do their, as they would think of it, clean out and then be done, because it creates a certain habit, shall we say, a habit of repression. In due course, other figures are going to emerge. In due course, other structures, structures which perhaps you know, could come from, who knows, the environmental movement or political opposition or splinters from the not necessarily always entirely house-trained systemic opposition. And presumably they're going to have to close those down as, as well. So I think it's not that we're going to see sort of a constant stream of arrests and organisations being shuttered. But on the other hand, there will be, I think, the assumption that the, the rules of the game have changed. The limits of what is permissible political activity have been redrawn. And when and if people breach those boundaries, then the Siloviki, the security apparatus, are going to be ready and waiting for them. And that's, in a way, the second point, because... This is not just simply, as it were, habit across the government. This is also about what do the security forces believe are their new terms of reference. The thing that's always so striking about the Putin regime is actually how far it depends on, on Ponyatia understandings, on a nod and a wink and a hint, and on allowing individual institutions and individual people considerable free reign. And so they, they kind of act until someone tells them to stop acting or until they get a signal that they think means they have to do something differently. Now, the security apparatus, not necessarily because they're entirely comprised of psych psychopaths, want to continue repressing because, well, that keeps them active, that keeps them relevant, that keeps them in, at the centre of the system. And it also means, incidentally, that they can use that as a cover for opportunities to make money through blackmail and raiding or to step on their political opponents or whatever. It's just their nature. So I think the problem is also going to be not just whether or not the state really wants active repression to continue, but whether it will be bothered or exercised enough to stop the security agencies from doing so. That's really what we're going to want to see. And this is what I mean when I talk about the fact that we've moved into a new stage of, of repression. Not because, said, because Putin is actually thinking about ruling as an iron-fisted dictator, but once you unleash these forces it's really quite hard to rein them back in. And I'm not sure if Putin really has it in him to do that. So we'll just have to wait and see. Again, my, my usual answer. Uh, secondly, Belarus. Again, let's talk about security forces. I came across it quite late. It was, it was in May. I've only just come across it, though. One particular uh, well, of the uh, opposition emigre politicians, Valery Tsipkalo, who, it emerges, has sort of said that he wants to raise, from his own money but above all through donations, 
equivalent of an 11 million euro bounty, which will be paid on the arrest of Lukashenko. So, you know, he wants people from the security forces to arrest Lukashenko for all his many, many crimes, and they'll get 11 million euros. Now, this is, uh, I think, I mean, I suspect it's essentially more, uh, more an attempt to grab a few headlines rather than a serious policy proposal. But, I mean, A, it's just quite appealing as a thought. But B, it did get me thinking. Lukashenko now increasingly is dependent upon the security forces. I mean, who else has he really got left? He's also, I mean, frankly, increasingly erratic and, I think for many of the security forces, even embarrassing. If, if we just take um, Tsipkala, um, in June of 2020, he decided to characterise Tsipkala as a bore. And Lukashenko said, I mean, I just sometimes wonder where the hell he's coming from, that Tsipkala just doesn't understand that the number of piglets born from sow and their quality does not depend on the sow, it also depends on the boar. And if there is a boar like this person, there will be stillborn pigs. Now, in part, this is perhaps Lukashenko reaffirming his collective farm roots. More likely, it's actually a frankly really rather snide and vicious attack because... Um, Tsepkalo and his wife, they had a child through uh, in vitro fertilization. But it also, I think, just emphasizes the extent to which this is a guy who, frankly, is beginning to lose it. And, I mean, that's something that, you know, it's not going to be lost also on the security apparatus. But the point is, if they feel they are stuck in a corner, if they feel they have nowhere to go, then, of course, they are going to support him. And it's worth noting, for example, that within the Belarus Amon, the, the much-feared riot police, there are actually veterans from Berkut, the Ukrainian much-feared riot police, who performed such a, a sterlingly ghastly service in the Euromaidan, such that you know, a fair number fled to Russia, where they're actually working for the, the Russian National Guard. Others fled to Belarus, where they're working for Lukashenko. Others are actually acting as fighters, militants, even in some cases local commanders, within the Donbass pseudo-states. But the point is, you know, that's because they had somewhere to run to. If these people feel they have nowhere to run to, then they will fight to the end. I've talked in the past about how we should be kicking out KGB residenturas, KGB offices, inside the, the Belarusian embassies. And yes, of course, Minsk will then retaliate by doing the same and more. But frankly, I think that's a price to be paid. I don't honestly think that our intelligence officers in Minsk are probably having that much to do. They're probably very carefully watched. And I imagine that communications uh, intelligence is as useful as anything else there. But beyond that, looking at actually specifically at what's going on within Belarus, maybe what we ought to be doing is encouraging not so much bounty hunting by Belarusian security forces, but defections. Offering bounties and maybe even temporary visas and work permits and so forth to those members of the security force who defect across the border and who are willing to go public on the crimes that they were ordered to commit and on what they know about the regime, as well as being privately debriefed for whatever other intelligence they can be garnered. Now, of course, this would cost money. 
it will cost money to offer them, you know, I mean, even if it's just 10,000 euros, that's that no small amount, just to sort of set themselves up in, you know, in, in some other European location. But the point is that 10,000 euros, 100,000 euros, a million euros, these are massive sums for a Belarusian lieutenant of the police. They are as nothing to above all the European Union because this is a, in a way in which the European Union really could begin to make it make a difference. When it comes down to it, Belarus is a European problem. Of course, the United States has a role. Of course, the United Kingdom has a role. Interestingly enough, of course, uh, MI6, as ever, was, was was blamed for somehow organising the bringing down of the Ryanair flight the other week as part of a provocation to paint Lukashenko in a bad light, <laughs> as if MI6 needed to be called on to do that. Anyway, to return to it, I mean, this is, a, this is a place in which Europe can actually, again, demonstrate that it has some kind of relevance in a security context. Look, we know that for all the talk about European armies and European joint arms procurement and so forth, from a military point of view, Europe will remain pretty much a zero for a considerable length of time in the future. There are individual national armies which you know, do have certain capabilities, absolutely, but the European Union as a whole is not in any way a military security power. However, it has money, it has a certain amount of soft power, and it has the capacity to provide a safe haven. These are all things that could be mobilised to do anything we can to try and drain the loyalty and thus legitimacy of the security hierarchy within Belarus. I mean, it's one thing to get the odd lieutenant or even a captain, but what if a general wanted to jump across? Well, that would be trickier because obviously the higher the rank, the more likely they are to be implicated in Lukashenko's crimes. But again, it's something we ought to be thinking about. It's something that in co collaboration with the uh, Opposition Coordinating Council under Tsikhanovskaya, maybe we ought to be actually thinking, well, OK, who, who would we regard as beyond the pale? And who would we perhaps, under certain circumstances, be willing to give complete or partial amnesty if they came across the border? Because if nothing else, if we can get Lukashenko to start mistrusting his own goons and thugs, then that begins to create extra dissension within the ranks. So it's something just to be thinking about. But the Ken goes back to my previous mantra. We need to be thinking more imaginatively about what to do about Belarus. And the third little mini-story I wanted to talk about. There is a uh, British Type 45 uh, missile destroyer, the HMS Defender, that at the beginning of next week is meant to be going into the Black Sea to carry out, whether explicitly say so or not is unclear, what's known as a FUNOP, a Freedom of Navigation Operation. Of course, the Russians aren't going to like this, but nonetheless, that's not necessarily, as I'll come on to, that's actually a good reason to be doing it. I mean, this is a, a relatively new destroyer. It's certainly got its capabilities. Um, interestingly enough, actually, it, in 2019 it was, that actually it intercepted uh, a Dow in the Arabian Sea and uh, took off it 131 kilos of crystal meth, worth about 3.3 million pounds, which is a fairly decent haul, though unfortunately it would have taken 318 such loads to equivalent the cost of that one ship. Um, but anyway, th it, but nonetheless, this is one ship. It is 
I would suggest the right symbolic balance. It's a significant enough vessel that it's noteworthy. But on the other hand, it's not like trying to actually send a whole naval task force in to make a point of buzzing Russian naval bases on Crimea or anything like that. As I say, this is going to annoy the Russians. And they are also going to spin it as both aggressive, but also somehow proof of Britain's fundamental um, triviality that, oh, it doesn't matter. It's quite interesting that when, um, about a month ago, HMS Dragon went into the Black Sea, I mean, it was just on transit from, from one Ukrainian port to another, and the Russians then claimed that they had sort of chased it off. Well, of course, that's not the case. But look, we cannot allow our actions to be shaped by the question of, well, the Russians could say no nasty things about it, because the Russians will, if need be, invent whatever they want. They will spin what they will spin, but if it annoys them, if it bothers them, then that's in some ways a perverse reason to do it. doesn't mean to say, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that everything that annoys the Russians is worth doing. But this, this I think, as I said, hits that balance. It's robust diplomacy. Neither on the one hand showing us to be weak and willing to accept the Russians when they just simply decide that certain territories and waters are now theirs, but nor is it directly inflammatory. It's not something that they can meaningfully and credibly believe is some kind of hostile act. This one destroyer, however capable, is not about to go and take on the entire Russian Black Sea fleet. That's it. That's the point. That's that delicate balance we need to be striking. We need to be show ourselves as resolute, show ourselves as not willing to have our own freedom of navigation in naval terms, but also freedom of navigation in political terms, defined, constrained and delineated by Moscow. But at the same time, nor do we want to look as if we're actually going out of our way to be directly threatening in a way that would actually play to the, as we know, real paranoias, which are to be found in the heads of the old men in the Kremlin. And talking about that balance, it seems to be a suitable point to stop for the moment, and then after the break, come on to the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva, which again, unfortunately, is already being sort of presented as some kind of macho struggle between the personalities as if they're about to go arm wrestling. Hopefully, they won't. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So next week in Geneva, President Joe Biden and President Vladimir Putin will have their summit. Obviously, for a lot of people, they've been asking, well, why on earth is this happening? There is nothing specific on the table. And more to the point, this summit gives Putin a kind of legitimating moment. It makes it look as if he can present himself, at least, as being the equal of the American president. And in some ways, actually, all the more so precisely because of Biden's previous utterances about him, a man with no soul, killer and such like. 
it actually makes it more of a propaganda coup if you have brought to the table someone who you know does not want to be at the table with you, if that makes sense. But I don't think that's a good enough reason not to do it. Summits are not prizes for good behaviour. Actually, they are often necessities precisely because two countries do not see eye to eye. Now, ideally, absolutely, they should be held when there is something practical on the table. An, an agreement that both sides have moved towards, and this is about that final closing of the deal, that point where it takes the two leaders to agree the, the, the eventual terms. This is not the case now. I mean, we might see some talk about uh, strategic uh, stability and arms limitation and such like, but basically, no, that will just simply be a little bit of a froth on the top. And yes, this will legitimate Putin to a degree. But what we have to appreciate is that although no one, I think, is going into this with particularly high hopes, it does not necessarily mean that it is bound to be useless. We can't just write it off as being pointless. Actually, I think um, it was a pretty good piece by Joshua Herminski in The Hill, which I thought struck a good balance. And particularly, it concluded by saying, If anything of substance is to come out of the forthcoming summit, the White House needs to understand what it wants the relationship to be and what that relationship can be what tools it has at its disposal, and, just as important, the limitations of its power. But it also needs an understanding of who is sitting across the table from Biden, and the system in which Putin himself lives and operates. Anything less than that is merely a photo opportunity. So let me pick out a few of those elements that were covered there and just drill down a little bit more deeply. What the White House wants, that's the first thing. And here I think there is a bit of an issue because it's fairly clear. I mean, what, the, what does the White House really want? I mean, yes, it, it would like Russia out of Ukraine. It would like Navalny free, etc., etc. What it really wants, though, I think, is just to spend as little attention as possible on Russia. It wants to box Russia up so that Russia will just simply you know, just be, be a... An unpleasant regime if need be, but an unpleasant regime that the White House does not have to spend attention on because there are other priorities. I mean, from Biden's point of view, China is clearly the big foreign policy priority and naturally domestically dealing with coronavirus and then the subsequent economic reconstruction are much, much more important to him. You know, he does not want to embark on some grand crusade against Russia, nor, on the other hand, does he want to surrender to Russia. And this is the problem because stability in itself is not something Putin wants. It's not that I think he believes in instability for its own sake. Those who suggest that he's involved in some kind of ideological campaign to bring down the structures of the rules-based international order and so forth totally miss the point. It's more that he has no reason to want to stabilise the status quo in which he feels he is not either safe or properly... Um, well he and his country, Russia, properly respected. So from his point of view, actually, the more America makes it clear that it wants Russia to be a good boy, well, firstly, this will actually go against their own sort of natural emotional response, and I'll come to emotions in a moment. But secondly, it actually can be become a, a perverse incentive because the flip side of we want you to be a good boy is if you are a bad boy, you will have our attention. 
So my big concern is precisely that the White House is heading to, to Russia, uh, to talk to Russia, without really having thought through how what they want is going to seem to the other side. Then let's talk about the tools and the limitations of those tools at the Americans' disposal. These are very, very limited. In grand terms, I must admit, I suspect that the high point of American global power, hegemony, call it what you will, I think has already passed. I think when, when the histories are written, that will be clear. And frankly, this predates Trump. Not that the Donald didn't do quite a bit to accelerate the process, but nonetheless, I think the idea that America is not only the exceptional power, but the power to which everyone looks to for leadership in the West is no longer the case, and that the tools on which it tends to rely, which are essentially sort of soft power, naming and shaming, and economic sanctions, aren't really going to work and aren't really working in this case. I mean, on the whole, the arguments for sanctions tend to rely entirely on unprovable counterfactuals. Um, well, the Russians backed away after their military build-up uh, around Ukraine earlier this year, and that was because of sanctions. Well, I don't believe it was, but certainly it's impossible. Until you find some Russian statesman who is actually willing to say, yes, it's a fair cop, we were about to invade Ukraine, but then we, we thought how terrible it would be if the Americans sanctioned our economy. Well, until you've got that kind of proof, we can't say that sanctions have been working in this respect. And the real problem with sanctions of the economic variety are that, again, you have to find that, that necessary middle ground. And it's a very, very difficult one to, to identify between being too weak. And let's be honest, authoritarian regimes tend to be quite good at resisting sanctions because they can resist you know, to the last one of their ordinary citizens. Just ask the North Koreans. Alternatively, if you make them too devastating then actually you give the other country no option. I mean, let's be honest, if, if somehow America could be in a position in which it would absolutely devastate the Russian economy, and things like kicking it off the SWIFT interbank network certainly would not do that. But let's say there was some kind of magic tool at the, the disposal of the American government that could do that. Is Putin going to say, oh dear, that's a shame. Look at my country about to fall into economic ruin. I suppose I will have to give in to the Americans. Or will you think I either surrender or I double down? And if I want my country to remain autonomous and independent, then I have no choice. And I will have to find some alternative way of striking back, which, and I'm not talking about sort of nuclear missiles arcing out of the northern oceans. But, you know, maybe it is. Well, certainly, well, but we will, let's say, hold Ukraine effectively um, militarily to ransom or something much more devastating. Or, OK, we will try and, I don't know, crash the entire American power grid. Whatever it is disposal, you do not want to push people to that stage where they feel they have absolutely nothing to lose. And economic sanctions, it's, as I said, to try and reach that stage is, is very limiting, limiting for the so-called hegemonic power especially when you realise that actually it will also have massive costs to yourself and to your allies. I mean, again, this is the interesting thing about the whole Nord Stream 2 case, this uh, gas pipeline, where actually the, the Biden administration has, has backed down in, in its row, not with Russia, 
but with Germany. Because it was the Germans who were pushing for the gas pipeline to be completed. For a long time, America was trying to stop them and placing sanctions on firms associated with the pipeline. I think Biden has now accepted that this is going to happen anyway. So he might as well at least try and minimise the damage being done to relations between Washington and Berlin. So limited tools and perhaps a limited understanding of how American intents and desires look to the Russians. Because then we actually have this crucial element, the, the element of the, that was brought up at the end of Huminsky's piece, Putin himself. What he wants, what he can do. And I've read a lot of uh, recent uh, punditry about the summit, much though not all coming from the other side of the Atlantic. And look, some of it's really rubbish and some of it's very good. But the interesting thing is... Almost invariably, when they come to the Russians, they're talking about interests. They are about logic and common sense and practical goals. And I'm not convinced that that's really what it's about. In fact, I'm not actually convinced that that's what any international relations are really about. Particularly, like I said, particularly international relations, where the, where the character and the role of the individual leaders matter that much more than in domestic politics. Putin is responding to an essentially emotional assessment of Russia's place in the world, Russia's rightful place in the world, and what he regards as the threats to that. In common sense terms, you know, Russia shouldn't be in the Donbass. In common sense terms, they didn't need to try and poison Navalny. In common sense terms, much of what this regime does does not seem to make sense. Instead, you have to understand it emotionally and through the, the prism of their own perspectives. And from his point of view, when people talk about you know, how America needs to demonstrate leadership to show Russia what behaviours are not acceptable, I mean, that is, from their point of view, about America not treating Russia as a great power, as a sovereign power. About America believing it has the right to lay down the law and tell Russia how to be and what to do. Now, look, I'm not for a moment trying to justify the Russians' position. I'm just trying to explain how I see it and why, from Putin's point of view, I think this is framed as an existential struggle. An existential struggle for Russia's rightful place in the world. I mean, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to belabor the point now. He is by no means insane. He is by no means irrational. He just simply has his own frame of reference. And again, a frame of reference that I'm not convinced the current American leadership and current American policy truly understands or is willing to factor into its own calculations. So what possible virtues could come out? I mean, if this is essentially a gathering of an American president who doesn't understand Russia and a Russian president who doesn't understand America, is this not going to be just simply a dialogue of the deaf? Well, look, to an extent it may well be. But let me at least try and pull a few little fragments of silver lining out of this particular cloud at the end. First of all, one thing that Biden can do is try on a personal and emotional level to convince Putin that he is not the kind of president who is going to commit himself to regime change in Russia. It's quite interesting that uh, in, in the sort of recent uh, interviews and statements of Putin, when asked about Biden, he very much frames it as, well, look, Biden is a 
you know, a rational man, a professional politician, he's not likely to do erratic, emotional things. And I think this is actually important. And in some ways, interestingly, I mean, actually, he's framing Biden as something, someone very unlike Trump. And for, so for all of those people who think, oh, well, the Russians loved the Trump era and such like, no, it actually scared them to have all of America's power in the hands of someone who was so unpredictable and so erratic and so clearly, well, yes, emotional. So in that respect, actually, I think Biden would be building on an assumption that's already there. In some ways, he actually needs to distance himself, not from Trump, which is fairly inevitable, but actually from Hillary Clinton, whom, maybe rightly, probably wrongly, but nonetheless with uh, conviction, the Russians or the Kremlin believed was the kind of figure who, as an American president, would commit to this kind of a regime change campaign, a crusade in, in Russia. So basically, Biden needs to show that he is precisely not that kind of a person. And if he can engage his famous interpersonal skills, not to make Putin his, his, his mate, that's not going to happen. But on the other hand, at least to try and get through the emotional fear, because fear is what it is, fear of the power that nestles within the grip of an American president, that actually would be a step forward. Secondly, Biden can use it as an opportunity to try and lay down some practical red lines, but, and above all, express to Putin, and this is something that can't be done overtly and openly, but express to Putin what the consequences of crossing those red lines could be. And as I said, I really would stress that these have to be practical ones. I mean, for example, in the wake of the recent ransomware attacks, there are some people who are saying, aha, well, because the Russian state isn't able to control its hackers or isn't willing to control its hackers, they must be held responsible. Well, let's be blunt. If that were the case, then those IRA attacks, which took place courtesy of money raised in Boston, back in the days of the Troubles, should have been grounds for British uh, hostilities against the United States. There is an extent to which we have to accept that countries are not entirely in control of everything that happens within their own borders. So it has to be meaningful, sensible, rational, practical red lines. And as I say, outlining them and outlining the potential consequences cannot be done publicly. If it's done publicly, it will be regarded, rightly, I think, as a direct challenge to Putin and to, to Russia. And we know that when challenged in this kind of way, Putin has a tendency to feel that his personal political standing and Russia's status depend on demonstrating that he is not afraid, that he will not be constrained by any such challenges. So do it quietly. And do not then let that be leaked to the New York Times or the Washington Post the way it seems almost everything is. Do not then sort of quietly brief it and so forth. State it, make it a, a, a sensible warning rather than a, a macho bluster and hope that that is taken to heart. It may well not be, but I think that's a lot more useful than trying to do it publicly. And the thirdly is, look, this, if this is going to have any kind of practical value, this can be a way of opening up further channels of dialogue. Putin and Biden are not themselves going to thrash out anything significant. That's not the role of leaders in any way. But on the other hand, what they can do is address the atrophying level of 
international discussion that takes place above all, obviously, at the moment between the United States and Russia. You know, for example, I mean, again, it was one of these things that was, I suppose, I can understand why suspended, particularly after 2014 and Crimea and the Donbass. You know, but there needs to be more military to military discussion, if nothing else, just simply for the sake of confidence building. There can be all other kinds of practical d discussions. And look, the Russians are going to spin this as the Americans coming back to us, as the Americans realising that they can't rule the world without us, as the Americans realising that our expertise is, is uh, essential. Whatever. That's fine. Except that the Russian, particularly the Russian state media, will spin whatever happens in, in positive terms. I mean, I, I still always love Soviet joke about um, Khrushchev and Kennedy getting into a, a, a foot race. And Kennedy, needless to say, wins. However, once it's reported in Pravda, the response is, well, the American president embarrassed himself by coming next to last. But the Soviet general secretary, well, he heroically came second. Technically true, entirely misleading. These habits haven't gone away. But again, fine. So, so let let the Russian propaganda machine make of it what what it will. If anything does come out of it in these positive terms, if there can be more more discussion, then maybe the next summit or the summit after that, perhaps will be one in which there's something more, rather more meaningful to discuss. But at the moment, relations are I won't say as bad as they can be because clearly they, they they could get rather worse. But nonetheless, relations are problematically bad. And having some kind of conversation like this, there is nothing to be lost, and only, I would suggest, something to be gained. But maybe that's just me feeling optimistic. But on the other hand, that's a good way to end on Russia Day. So, thank you very much, as ever, for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time... Keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.